Great to be with you, Free Christian Church, even in this setting. I wish you were all here and I could see you in person, but we'll just have to wait for another time for that. But uh, I'm grateful to John, Pastor John, for letting me uh, be here to speak to you this morning. And I want to have us look at a passage of Scripture that I think is relevant in these times. We're living in a strange new reality, there's no doubt about that. Who could have imagined just six weeks ago the whole world would change like it has? And the big question, question I think, for all of us is how do we live in this time? What are we supposed to be doing? Who are we supposed to be? It really is a huge question because everything has changed. And I want to take us to that passage because that passage is about how to live in the meantime. And that's what I'm calling this. We're not where we were, and we're not where we're going to be. We don't really know where we're going to be completely. We're in the meantime, and that is the title for this message. And so, first of all, I want to take you back to that passage of Scripture. But before I do that, I just want to pray for you and pray for me. Join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be our teacher this morning, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Let me give you a little bit of background on the passage before we look at it. It takes place about 600 years before Christ. The kingdom of Babylon had been growing in power, and it began sweeping across the whole Middle East, conquering nation after nation, and finally, <clears throat> last of all, it was right on the doorstep of Jerusalem. And the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, sieged the city of Jerusalem for about two years, during which time there was just terrible suffering, famine and death, and horrible uh, disease. <clears throat> finally, the city fell, and the armies conquered Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple, they took the Ark of the Covenant, which was that wooden box that had the artifacts of ancient Israel in it, and was the sign of the very presence of God. And so that was gone. It disappeared forever from history. And they took, they killed the royal family, took the king prisoner to Babylon, and then they took the upper classes of Jerusalem and they forced marched them 600 miles to the east to what is now Iraq, uh, approximately, but the ancient nation of Babylon. And there they were held as captives. And so Jeremiah, who was left behind, the prophet, he writes to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give them a word about how they are to live in this in between time, in the meantime. And I'll read the passage now, and then we'll look at three words that come out of this for us, three truths that I believe are helpful for us in this time when we're trying to understand how to live in this time. All right, here's the scripture. <clears throat> Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 14. I'll give you just a second. If you have your Bibles there and you're going to follow along or you're Looking it up on your phone, Jeremiah 29, 4-14. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried 
into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. So we say thanks be to God. The first point that comes out of this that I think I'm finding helpful as I reflect on it and hope it is for you is found in verses 4 to 6 where the Lord tells them to settle down, to build houses, to plant gardens, eat what those gardens produce, marry, have children, give your children to marriage, into marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. If I were to sum up this point, I'd use the familiar expression that a Christian writer of a generation ago, Mary Rodman, coined, and that is bloom where you're planted. Perhaps some of you have that book or read that book of devotions many years ago, but I think she invented that phrase and we understand what it means and it's come into our language. We're not simply to survive a time like this, but we're actually to grow, to get healthier spiritually, maybe physically, to get stronger in our relationships with God and with others. This is to be a time of growth, not a time to hunker down. It's interesting that uh, there's a couple in the church that took this advice literally and were married two weeks ago. Ryan Charlesma and his uh, new bride, Allison, they uh, got married on Easter weekend. JP did the wedding and it was a different kind of wedding. It took place in their backyard. It was a beautiful weekend, as you may recall. And the guests of honor drove by, honked their horns and waved. What a great idea. And I bet it saved their parents a lot of money. Why didn't we have the virus when my kids were getting married? That would have been great. Kidding. That's what the Lord is saying. Settle down in this time. Don't hunker down. Our human nature is to try to ride something like this out and just hope that it's over sooner than later. Of course, that's natural. We do hope it's over sooner than later. But just to try to hang on and wait till something, a trial like this is over, 
is to miss what God is doing. And that's why this is sound counsel. Remember, the Lord says to the exiles, I carried you into this situation in Babylon. God, in his permissive will, has allowed this virus at this time in history, in our lives. We don't know why, and it's not for us to figure out the big picture of it, what the purpose for the world is. We don't know that. But each of us can discern what God is saying to us, what we're to be doing in this time, maybe what we're to be doing in the future. Maybe everything has changed now for you going forward. What, who we're to be, how we're to grow. And so there's a way we can pray, and it's an ancient way of praying. It's called the prayer of examine. The word examine is just that word that refers to the little pointer on a set of scales that tells you what something weighs. It indicates, it points to the reality of that situation in, in terms of weighing something. The prayer of examine is to go to God and say, God, what are you saying to me? What am I to be doing? Who am I to be becoming in this? What's the meaning of this time for me? You may not get an answer, but you may. And it may be that God has something all new for you coming out of this. So rather than just hunker down and wait this out, it can be a time of seeking God, what he means and what he wants. And there's another reason, and that is because it helps us keep our sanity. Over the years, couples would come to Free Christian Church, they would um, show up some Sunday, introduce themselves and, and say, we're so-and-so and we're from a different part of the country and we're here just for a year or two years on a job relocation, but we want to get connected. We want to join the church. We want to meet people. We want to serve. And those people were healthy people. They were healthy emotionally. They were healthy spiritually. They perhaps through uh, experience had come to realize through relocations that the natural tendency is to want to just leave everything in storage and count the days till you can get back home. But they had realized that is no way to live. Rather, they understood that they had to unpack their boxes, put the curtains up, hang the pictures, join a church, meet people, get to know their neighbors, build community right where they were. And that's great advice for us to settle, to connect, maybe not in a new way because you're part of a community here, but to connect to this new reality. And what I've found for me personally, because it's, it's a confusing time, I've got to be honest with you, I'm, I'm kind of unsettled by all of this. There are times when I feel kind of anxious about it all, not getting sick, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. And Pastor John said it a few weeks ago when he talked about the fact that our identity is confused in this because we're not doing perhaps what we've always been doing. And so for me, a routine, and I've had to invent a new routine, but a routine has become very important for me. You know, there's a, there's a truth that comes out of behavioral psychology that says often you can't think your way out of a feeling, a negative feeling perhaps, of anxiety or sadness or, or mild depression. You can't think your way out of that, but you can act your way out of it. And so a routine becomes important at a time like this. You wake up in the morning and maybe the temptation like it is for me to just want to roll over and pull the covers over my head and stay in bed. But that's when the routine is so important. You simply do the next thing. What's the next thing? Get up, get dressed, 
Put the coffee on. Feed the cat, in our case. Walk the dog, maybe, in your case. Begin your day. And when during the day you become kind of uncertain as to what you're supposed to be doing or who you are, do the next thing, whatever that is. And bit by bit, walk your way out of your feelings and confusion. Uh, it's a time when we need to be a little more like dogs than cats. If you don't mind, indulge me for a moment because I have some excerpts from dog's diary and from a cat's diary. Here's the excerpt from a dog's diary. 8 a.m., dog food, my favorite thing. 9.30, a car ride, my favorite thing. 9.40, a walk in the park, my favorite thing. 10.30, got rubbed and petted, my favorite thing. 12, lunch, my favorite thing. 1, play in the yard, my favorite thing. 3, wag my tail, my favorite thing. Milk bones, 5 o'clock, my favorite thing. 8, watch TV with the people, my favorite thing. Sleeping on the bed, 11 o'clock, my favorite thing. In other words, they kind of take life as it comes. On the other hand, some of us maybe are struggling because we're more cat-like. Excerpts from a cat's diary. Day 983 of my captivity. Let's pray it doesn't go on that long. My captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangling objects. The only thing that keeps me going is my dream of escape. That's no way to get through this. Bloom where you're planted. Find what God is saying. Find your routine. Live, thrive, grow in this time. Don't just wish it away. Second advice we get is in verse 7. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity to the city which I have carried you. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, seek the welfare of others. You know something, this is the only place in the Old Testament where God's people are told to pray for their enemies. We see that in the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus says, pray for your enemies. But this is the only place in the Old Testament and in any ancient literature where people are told to pray and seek the welfare of their enemies. It's a remarkable piece of guidance for us as to how we're to live in the meantime. First of all, it says seek the peace, and we know that word is shalom, and John has certainly unpacked that for you. It's a wonderfully rich word, much richer just than the word peace. It means wholeness and well-being. It means blessing, that you're wishing on someone. You're praying for their prosperity, their health, their joy, their harmony in life and in relationships and with God. It's all of that. And Jeremiah is saying, and the Lord speaking through him is saying, seek this for the wider community. Why? Because if the community prospers, we prosper. This is an, an incredibly unique time in the history of the world because the whole world is in this together. And we've seen what the stopping of all of the activity of the world is doing. Uh, oceans are getting cleaner, you've seen that. Canals of Venice are clean. The skies of Los Angeles are clean. Well, they've been getting cleaner for a while. China, India, the clouds of pollution have lifted and people are seeing the Himalayas for the first time in 
many, many generations. And so in some way, the earth is responding to this, is being blessed. Imagine if all of the Christians in the world, all two billion of them, sought the blessing, sought to bless and encourage the humanity in some way, sought to make a contribution to the wider community of the world in their local corner of it. Who knows what transformative effect that might have? But we can try. And all we can do is try to bless our little part of the world. It's good advice from that standpoint because the community is blessed as we as we are, or rather we're blessed as the community is blessed. But there's another reason, that's because we're made in the image of God. And when we bless others, when we act in love and kindness and goodness, we're imitating the way God is because God is good, He's loving, He's kind. And we're, we're in, in congruence with God when we're doing that. Our, our being made in the image is in harmony with Him in a new way. And that's true for everyone. It's more true for believers because we understand who God is through Jesus Christ. But even for people who aren't believers, when they act in a way that is in accordance with that image of God, shattered though that image is, damaged though it is by sin and rebellion against God, it's still like a mirror, broken though it may be, you can still see something of the image of God in it. And that's why we see all of these stories of people acting to bless the community. They're doing it because they are acting in some way to live out, and they may not even understand it, to live out that image of God that they're made in. And, and, and because of that, it feels good when we do good. That's a very healthy reason for seeking the welfare of the community. That's a very sound reason in this time of uncertainty to do that. Abraham Lincoln said it, he said, my religion is very simple. When I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. In fact, that's in the scriptures, not quite that way. But Proverbs eleven seventeen says, your own soul is nourished when you are kind, but it is destroyed when you are cruel. There's a, there's a nourishing that takes place in our own lives, in our own souls, when we act to bless other people. It comes back to us in that way. I've told this story before, so if you've heard it, uh, I'm not losing my memory. Well, not yet anyway, but, um, so it may be familiar. But I was in a Dunkin' Donuts a while back, right here in Andover. And, uh, and I went in, it, was a, it started off to be kind of an un, Kind of an unenjoyable day for me. I don't know quite why, I don't remember. My mother would have said I'd gotten up on the wrong side of the bed. But I was sort of in a, in a, in a snarky mood, just looking to get angry with everybody and everything. And I got there and there's a long line coming out the door. And I'm looking at the clock, thinking I've got to be in a meeting. And I'm getting a little more and more annoyed. The line is inching forward. And I'm thinking of all the snide things I'm going to say when I finally get up to the counter. And, and say, how hard is this to run this uh, business like this? How hard can that be? You're going to do better. And I'm thinking all those nasty thoughts. And then I sensed that the Lord tapped me on the shoulder. And in his spirit, I didn't hear it. I'm not hallucinating. But I can tell you exactly what it was. The Lord said, Jack, why can't you just be kind? Why can't you just be kind? 
and I was rebuked in my spirit. And as I got closer, I saw part of the problem. The woman working at the counter, she was an older woman, and she was just confused. She was getting orders wrong, and she was struggling with the technology. And I felt bad for her. When I got up to the counter, my whole mood had changed, and I asked her how she was doing. She said, oh, I'm not doing well. It's my second day, and it's, I'm not doing well at all. And I, I looked at her, and she made eye contact with me for, for the first time. I said, uh, it's going to get easier. You, you're going you're to figure this out. It's okay. People understand. And she smiled, kind of a weak smile, and uh, thanked me. And I left. My whole mood had changed. My soul was nourished. I sensed God saying, that's the way I want you to be. And the whole day changed from then on for the better. Our souls are nourished. So that's another very healthy, practical reason to find ways to bless other people in this time. It might be random acts of kindness, or it might be a ministry that you have. For me right now, it's trying to encourage pastors. have to do it online or phone calls, texting. But encourage them because it's hard pastoring right now. Pastors are relational. John is such a relational guy. It's hard to minister this way and to preach this way, looking at a camera. So I'm trying to encourage these guys, and God is blessing me as I see them blessed and encouraged. So we're to bloom where we're planted, we're to seek the welfare of others, and finally we're to find hope. This whole um, exile was to be tempered by hope. It was going to be 70 years. The false prophets had been telling them it's going to be over in two years. You can read that in chapter 28, just before this. It's going to be over in two years, and so don't bother unpack. Jeremiah says, no, 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 no. You're going to be here 70 years. You're not even going to get back, but your children will. Your grandchildren will. And God is going to bring you back. And he's going to gather you back together again in Jerusalem. And that was hope for them. We need hope in a time like this. We need small hope. We need temporal hope. Hope that happens in this time and in this life. And that's what the Lord was offering to the exiles. Seventy years, your children and grandchildren will come back. And that gives us hope. When we know our children and our grandchildren are going to be good, they're going to be okay, it's going to be, the future's going to be good for them, then regardless of what happens to us, we can find happiness and peace. And so he's saying, in this life, find hope. Find hope. Now, it was not going to be a long-lived hope, well, 70 years, but after they came back, Within a few generations, and they were settled, and the walls were rebuilt, and the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem. Within a few generations, the Persians came. And then the Greeks, under Alexander the Great. And then the Romans, under Julius Caesar. And then the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. And the land was, the people were dispersed in the final diaspora, the Jews all over the, the known world at that time. And so the temporal hope is only for a while. And our temporal hopes are only for a while because after this is over, it will end, something else will happen. Hopefully not like this. But for each of us individually, in some way, at some time, we're gonna go through a difficult time. 
But we need, we need uh, a temporal hope. We need an eternal hope. For the Jews, the eternal hope was that Jerusalem was paradise. The promised land was Eden. Not literally, because in many ways, it's kind of a hard place to live. A lot of it's desert. But it was a, a foreshadowing of paradise, of an eternal city that God, an eternal home that God would bring them to. In fact, there's a little reference to this in this passage. There's a, there's a, there's a, a line that scholars see as a messianic line. <clears throat> we see it in verse 14. So declares the Lord, I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations in places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. That gathering is a messianic hope. That the Jews of all ages, of all generations, of all places, would one day in the messianic age be gathered together in the new Eden, in that type, that foreshadowing of the promised land. And so there has to be a small hope for us. And for us, the small hope might be that you learn to live, as the scripture tells us to live, in week-long compartments. That every week you have something to look forward to because that's what the Sabbath was all about. Imagine this ancient people eking out just a subsistence living an agrarian people working like dogs six days a week and then one day a week on the Sabbath they feasted they gathered together to worship they sang they celebrated they thank God children played people were able to take that day and, and enjoy it and all week long they looked forward to that and that's so important that's another um, answer to how we're to live in this time have something that you are looking forward to in the short term maybe it's every week Maybe it's not quite like that, but have something. What are you looking forward to right now? Maybe seeing your grandchildren again, maybe FaceTime them, but something that is important for you right now that you're looking forward to. That's what helps sustain us in a time like this. And then we need the big hope. We need the small hope, the temporal hope. We need the eternal hope. And our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is that when this life is over, we will see again the faces of those who've lost, who've gone in the Lord. We'll see the, the face of the Lord. We will live beyond death. That we will never really die. That's the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever really understood that or discovered that. I don't know if you've ever simply asked Jesus Christ to forgive you for your sins and to come and live in your life and be there and give you everlasting life through his death on the cross, atoning for all the sins of the whole world. Through him, we can have that big hope, that eternal hope, that death will not have the final word, that we will not die forever, but we will live again in that new paradise, that everlasting paradise. That's the hope. We need hope in a time like this. So we're to bloom, settle and grow, we're to seek others, to bless them, 
and we'll be blessed in the process, and we're to find hope, big and small. Let me just close with a passage of scripture that comes from the other book that Jeremiah wrote, the book of Lamentations, and it follows the prophecy of Jeremiah. And it's the point of view from Jeremiah's perspective, who is left behind, and listen to how it begins. Chapter one, verse one. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. Sounds like Andover. And then he goes on to lament, and the whole book is a series of his sorrows over all of the terrible things that have happened to God's people. He says in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 19, I remember my afflictions and my wanderings, and he's speaking for all of God's people here. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. In this last line, great is thy faithfulness. Amen.